millions of Christians face intense persecution and risk their lives for the sake of the gospel. Vom Oz Radio supports persecuted Christians, giving a voice to the testimony of those who have been denied a voice. Our programs inform and encourage Christians in Australia and around the world to mobilize and to stand with our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. Welcome to Vom Oz Radio, voice for the persecutor. Welcome again. My name is Todd Nettleton. We are in the studio today with uh, another of our one name only guests. Uh, we are with Ben and Kimberly. They are gospel workers in South Asia, veteran gospel workers in that part of the world. Ben and Kimberly, welcome to Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. I like to start when I, when I have a chance to talk to gospel workers. So let's start back at the very beginning. How did God call you out of an American context and say, hey, I want you to go to the ends of the earth? I grew up as a pastor's kid and loved the Lord from a young age and grew up seeing missionaries come through the church, loving what the Lord was doing on a global scale, but never wanting to be a part of it. Not Not antagonistically, just... Mm-hmm. I didn't. That's I had. For, that's for someone else. Yeah, I had other plans for my life. I, I love academia. I kind of wanted to go that direction. I had other plans for my life, and it really took marrying Ben, and the Lord using Ben to change my heart to what He wanted for us as a couple. We went later in life. Ben was forty, and I was thirty-three when we got to the mission field. And I grew up in a Christian home, also in a missionary family. Grew up in South America and Ecuador. But I was one of those kids that rebelled against everything. I hated God, hated church, hated my family, everything there was. And so I left home when I was a senior in high school, joined the Marine Corps, got all into alcohol, living the whole life that the Marine Corps and the military offered. Got out after four years, served my time honorably discharged, got out, immediately got into drugs. I was got into methamphetamines at the time manufacturing and trafficking of methamphetamines, ended up with 35 felony charges. Oh, my. The district attorney was going to give me three life sentences plus 100 years. I ended up pleading to five felony charges of manufacturing, trafficking, methamphetamines, given two 20-year sentences, two tens and a five, and was sent to prison. So I got saved in prison. And it was in my prison cell one day. The Lord had just brought me to that point of where I had nowhere left to turn but turn to him. And I knelt down in my prison cell that day and surrendered my life to Christ. And through just absolute miracle in the legal system, I was released, having served just less than three years. Went to Colorado to a, through a drug and alcohol rehab program. Men from that program were going to Kimberly's dad, her dad is a pastor. So I started attending her dad's church when I was in the drug and alcohol rehab program. And then that's where we eventually met. I had just been out of prison about a year when we met. Wow. So that was 2004. Mm-hmm. How excited were your parents when you <laughs> met this guy out of the drug and alcohol rehab program? It was really funny because my dad introduced us just because we were in proximity and that it, was the thing wasn't to do. For the it point was. Of dating. <laughs> yeah. And then we got to know each other on the church softball team that summer. But once we started dating, yes, my dad was less than enthused. <laughs> we have an incredible relationship now with her mom and dad. Like couldn't mm-hmm. be better. But it was 
He was a father that was concerned yes, about his daughter. I, I can understand that. Absolutely. And he should have been concerned mm -hmm. because I'd been out of prison less than a year, ex-drug addict, alcoholic. It is fascinating to me because we have had actually sitting the same chairs that you're sitting in, uh, a couple that we call Joe and Don. And uh, Joe also found Christ in a prison cell really? <laughs> uh, and is now helping deliver Bibles into Iran. So That's awesome. uh, God has plans for God people in prison. Yeah. So Absolutely. So the how grace did... of God, grace of God that I'm alive and free and out. And that, Amen. And it's an incredible privilege to serve the Lord. In mm. So then how did God take you out of an right. American context and say, hey, right. I don't want to just leave you in America. I want you to go. Yeah. So we... We got married toward the end of 2004, and we were living in Cortez, Colorado. We were working jobs. We loved the area. We loved our lives. Everything was good. And Ben came to me one at one point and said, I really feel like God's calling us into full-time ministry. And I said, no, like, he's not. <laughs> I don't think he is. <laughs> <laughs> and just over the next couple of years, he was very patient with me. He was very gracious with me through that. But he would just say, and the thing that he would repeat over and over was, I shouldn't be alive and I shouldn't be free. And God's given us a good life here, but he wants something more from me. He wants something different from me. We are people who firmly believe that that there's no such thing as, as secular work, that God has placed us mm -hmm. all in positions that he wants us. But for us, Ben just kept saying he was working, um, building custom homes at the time. I was working construction, mm -hmm. having a good job, good pay. But I just, there was something inside me that, saying, that was saying, I saved you for something right. different. Building right. homes at honorable living, you glorify God through it. But he was saying, there's something different. I have something different. And I, and I struggled with that mm -hmm. because here I was a, an ex drug addict, an ex felon, and I was uneducated. And I thought, the Lord can't use somebody like me. But yet I knew that he was calling me. And mm -hmm. so I, I met, occasionally we mentioned that to Kimberly, that there's, there's something. God is calling us to something. Mm -hmm. So how, Kimberly, did you come to the point of saying, yes, you're right, yeah. and yes, I'll go along with this? Yeah. <laughs> I had an opportunity in 2008 to go with some of my former professors from my undergrad to Uganda to help facilitate a conference at a law school in Uganda, which oh, was wow. kind of along the lines of the things I was passionate mm -hmm. about. But during that time, we stayed with some missionaries who were starting a pastor training center. It was really my first trip overseas, and I saw gospel work in cross-cultural cross -cultural on the front work. lines. Yeah, on the front yeah. lines. And so I came back and told him, yes, you're right. We have to sell everything we own. We have to do it today. We need to move to Africa. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd been married for four years when we, we, we came to the point where we were in agreement that, yes, God was calling us to something. And then from that point, it was finding where the Lord was mm -hmm. leading us, and eventually it led us then to South Asia. So you've now been there for 10 years. What does your work look like today? The goal of our ministry is pastor training and church discipleship. And we live in a really, really remote region of the mountains. And there's a lot of unreached people groups, unreached, unengaged villages that we uh, work to get into to evangelize and then train and disciple and raise them up to continue the ministry. You mentioned unreached, unengaged. The, the place where you live is on our VOM prayer map, so it's a place where Christians are persecuted. Mm -hmm. What does that look like in, in your context? 
You know, I, I live in Village X and I decide, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen to me? Mm-hmm. It varies a little bit and it kind of depends on the village and on the religion that the people come out of. There are two major religions in the region that we work in. And it varies a little bit, but primarily what we deal with in our region, the type of persecution we deal with is ostracism and exile from families and communities. And so that can just look like the end of relationships, um, husbands kicking wives out of the home, taking the children, kicking the wives out of the home, parents kicking their children out of their home. It can look like an entire village organizing against someone and cutting off their source of water, their source of food. Wow. Just with ostracism, it can be as extreme as people um, kicking people out of their homes, out of the village altogether, not allowing them to live in that place anymore. Um, But there are cases in our region of the ultimate extreme persecution. There have been cases in some villages where there have been no Christians and one person has come to Christ and the village has killed them. So in the past, that has been traditionally Mm -hmm. the form of persecution. That's the way it's manifested itself in the past. Mm -hmm. As time has gone on in the last handful of years, that has become less and more norm is what Mm -hmm. Kimberly talked about. So it's essentially... If you're going to follow Christ, there is no place for you in our village. There's no place for you in our home. There's no place for you in our village. You need to go somewhere else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do Christians respond to that? Especially, and I'm thinking of like the first one or two or three that are like, okay, we're the only ones. Mm -hmm. How do they work through that? How do they have faith through that? Mm. One of the things that has been amazing to see is the wholeheartedness, the way in which Christians in our region are fully sold out to Christ from the very beginning. Most people that we talk to when we talk about the fact that there's a a cost to follow Christ or things like this, they wouldn't even consider walking away. One of the examples I can think of is a young woman who went through our three-month discipleship program, and she was 15 years old. Her father was the most powerful witch doctor in their village. She came to Christ through the witness of a church in another village, and when she came to Christ, her family said, that's it. If this is what you're choosing, you have no home, you have no mother, you have no father, you're gone. You're this village is not your home. And for a 15-year-old girl anywhere, but specifically in these villages, that's a dangerous thing. And what she kept saying when she came to our discipleship program and, and we talked to her about it, what she kept saying was, I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about my faith, but I knew I couldn't deny Christ. She, she came to us when she'd been a Christian for two months at that point, and that's what she said. She said, I don't, I don't hardly know anything about, about this God or about my God, but I know I can't deny him, and I won't. And, and so she was homeless, and they sent her to us and said, can you help her? And so we said absolutely brought her through our discipleship program, and since then we looked to take care of her. So, so what we've seen is there's just a dedication to, to Christ immediately that is very humbling, in all honesty. And then what we see happen is the church becomes incredibly important because the church becomes the community. The church becomes the family. And you talked about villages where there's just one or two people, and that happens all the time. And what they will do is they will find the closest church. It may be in a village a four-hour walk away. They will go to that village. They will, walk they will four become. Hours. They will walk four hours. Yeah. They embrace that idea of the biblical idea of the church being your family, mm-hmm. and it means so much more to them in a in a very real way. Because when they do lose their family, they lose everything. They lose the community. They lose all support and help. And in a culture where you are so poor and you mm-hmm. depend so strongly on one another, 
that idea that is set up in Bible that of one body and that we work to edify and build one another up and take care for one another as a family, it, it means something. Mm-hmm. And they recognize that in, in a very, very real way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one of the things about South Asia that is fascinating to me is the variety of religious backgrounds and therefore the variety of persecution that happens because you have across that region, you've got Muslims and you've got Hindus and you've got Buddhists and you've got communists and you've got, I mean, everybody who's opposed to the church is kind of represented in that part of the world. I'm thinking particularly of Hindus, you know, there's millions of gods and then you come along as a Christian and say, actually, there's only one God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How hard is it for them to make that mindset shift to, okay, I I believe you. There, I'll, all these 330 million gods, now I was wrong about that. There is only one. How hard is that? Or, or what is the pathway as you're witnessing to a Hindu to get them to start asking questions and thinking in that direction of, okay, okay, yeah, there's one God? When we're sharing the gospel with Hindus, we— we have to generally start with the scripture, the Bible, because they understand they have all their own ancient written, um, the Vedas and other, th- other things, holy scriptures that they believe are truth. And we can come to them and we say, this is what we believe. This is truth right here. Our God says this, and this are his words that he wants us to know. So they're very spiritual people. So a lot of times they're very open to talking about spiritual things and they will uh, will listen. Other times they're very resistant and want nothing to do with mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. As an American, do they assume you're a Christian? Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. So any conversation you have, they're assuming, hey, these are Christians. Yes. yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because in South Asian culture, if this is your culture, then this is your religion. They're tied together. You don't separate them. Whereas in the States and Western culture, we tend to have, Mm -hmm. well, this is who we are religiously. This is who we are culturally. Mm -hmm. They mesh together in a way that we don't understand. So they're they're tied together. Yeah. One of the things that we've seen that has just been – it's just the spirit working in ways that we can't understand is that we've never – in our context, in the villages that we've worked with, specifically in the conversations Ben has had with people when he has led people to the Lord – there really haven't been debates. There hasn't been, let me try and convince you that there's one God. He has laid out the gospel, and people have said, that's truth. The Holy Spirit has truth. testified to them yeah. that, that mm-hmm. this is real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which and, I think is such a powerful thing for those who are listening here who, you know, we want to share the gospel. We have to get away from the idea that it's just an intellectual conversation. Yeah. It is we're introducing them to Jesus. He, like he's a real person. Mm-hmm. They, they, can, they need to meet him. Mm-hmm. And I think we often think about, well, I've got to have this argument and that argument, and I've got to, I've got to move their brain mm-hmm. to accept this factually. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, you need to introduce them to the living person of Jesus Christ. That's what needs to happen in this conversation. Yeah. And, and you always have to look at every, every situation and— try to as an opportunity and you have to kind of look at it and say well how can i engage it how can i start that spiritual conversation with them Uh, one example would be there was a man that was on the roof one day and he was weaving on its way out in this remote area and he's hand weaving this rug and we sit down we start talking with him about things and he just opens his opens up and starts sharing us with us about how his son had died just three months before and he had no hope, no reason left to live. And the pain of losing his son was just desperate. And he didn't know 
what what more was lived for? And so I asked him, I said, well, can I tell you about where I find hope? Can I tell you about a God who knows the pain of losing a son also and kind of make that connection? He's like, yeah, yeah, I'd like to know because that were related to what he was going through and feeling. And then that created the opportunity for me to share the gospel about, you know, about Christ and how uh, God gave his son, came and died for us and knew that pain. And he could relate to that. And he came to the Lord that day in this remote village. So it's it's finding those opportunities of how to how to open that door. And hope is a big aspect of that. Christianity offers hope in a way that the other religions in the world just don't. And we live among people that live lives that are so fatalistic and they don't have much hope. We live in a very poor region. The people in our region don't have a lot of hope in this temporal life. And the religions that they're enslaved in don't really offer a lot of hope for eternal life. They're, you know, they're cyclical. It's reincarnation. It's millions of lives that you have to go through mm -hmm. to one day hope to cease to exist. So offering the idea of hope. And that there is a hope because there is one God who's a creator God who has provided a way. It it resonates very deeply with people. And I think that's directly tied into then their ability to withstand persecution from yes. the first days is, well, hey, I have hope for the first time in my life. Yes. I'm not going to give this up. Yes. This I, I like this. I want to have hope in my life. And one of the things when we do lead people to Christ that we emphasize over and over is that there's going to be a cost to follow him. And we try to almost discourage somebody because <laughs> I know, are you and, sure <laughs> exactly because we don't want it to make it sound easy. It's not mm -hmm. a this isn't a health, wealth, and happiness thing. You're not doing it for immediately physical gains and better life here on earth. That's not what Christianity is about. And we go through that and emphasize that in great detail that it's going to cost. There's suffering involved. And so someone that's just doing it for some kind of a personal gain, will they'll lose interest very quickly right. because we want to make sure that when they do come to Christ, it's true saving faith, and then they are with, able to withstand what comes. One of the things about gospel work in South Asia, and, and I think of several states in India have anti-conversion laws, some other places in South Asia have anti-conversion laws. In that situation, the government is saying, you, you can't change your religion. And you can't tell anyone else to change their religion either. How do you think about that in terms of the, the risk that it poses to you? It, it doesn't scare me. I've been to prison before. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, Ben and Kimberly are going to give us a longer answer to that question, maybe a more complete answer to that question. They will be our guests again. And let me just say, don't miss next week. You're going to be amazed to hear about how God is working in places that may have seemed completely closed off to the gospel, completely unaccepting, unwilling, uninterested, and yet God is opening doors for the gospel to go forward. But to close our time today, I want to come back to the point that Ben just made about being in prison. He had been given multiple life sentences when he came to know the Lord. That background gives him a special boldness in sharing the gospel. His story reminded me of another guest we've had here. Joe and his wife Dawn smuggle Bibles into closed countries in the Middle East. And Joe is motivated to share Bibles in part because God's Word transformed his life when he was in prison. Just listen to a few minutes of Joe's story. I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas area, 
at a young age, I started making really poor decisions, and uh, that led me down a path of drugs and sin and immorality, and uh, I became a criminal to support uh, my drug habit uh, in and out of boys' homes, in and out of jails. Ended up in prison for my third time, and someone handed me a Bible. And when they did, I met the love and mercy of God um, in Jesus our Lord and understood that um, he had accepted me in the beloved and that I had been adopted into his family and that he would take my sin as far as the east is west and drive it away from me and that he would impart to me his love, his righteousness, his forgiveness, his freedom, and his hope. And so in that prison cell, I surrendered my life to uh, to his lordship, and I just fell in love with his word. Uh, it just began to produce a zealousness to know him and to abide with him. And in and through that, I just uh, began to grow and overcome uh, the sin and the things that entangled me in my life. Got out of prison and uh, never turned back. Jesus has been faithful to me um, all Amen. the days of my life. Amen. So I got to know, the person who handed you the Bible, was it somebody who came into the prison to minister, or was it a fellow prisoner? It was a fellow prisoner. His name was Oak Cliff. Um, he was going down for murder, and there was a little cell in the tank that we were in where they were doing a Bible study after um, uh, dinner every night, and uh, he's the one that gave me wow. uh, my first Bible. So you saw early on the power of the Bible, the power mm. of God's Word, mm. Today, you're involved in delivering Bibles into hostile and restricted nations. Mm. How does that make you feel? I mean, the, the, the fact that you're now providing that life-giving bread into places uh, similar, I would say, to a prison cell where it's mm. not prevalent, it's not easily accessible, mm. and yet that's what you're doing today. You know, it's really fun when I look back on my life before Christ and know that what the enemy meant for bad in my life, God meant for good to turn it about this day to save many people alive. And um, I'm just thankful to Jesus that he's allowed me to be used by him in that capacity. Um, I used to deliver death and just sit in the assembly of the wicked, getting high, plotting how to rob and steal and hurt others, and now I sit in the assembly of the righteous, plotting how to get his love and hope to um, hard-to-reach areas. And when I was born again in prison, I knew that my life was not my own. It was bought at a price, uh, the precious blood of God's Son, and that I was not to live this life uh, for what I could gain for myself, but rather uh, what I could give to others, and in particular, go back into the really dark places where God found me and helped pull them out of that darkness and share his hope and light. Christians in hostile nations may live far from us. As believers, we know that we are one with them and part of the body of Christ. As such, we can't ignore their suffering. If the Holy Spirit is impressing you to know more and support the work of Voice of the Martyrs, please visit our website at vom.com.au. All donations of $2 and more are tax deductible in Australia. This has been a production of Vom Oz Radio, Voice for the Persecuted.